Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comment section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Boy, you know, I get some of the best questions from you guys, and I wish I could answer them all at once because I've got a very long queue, and I know some of you guys have been waiting for a really long time for some of the answers to some of your questions, but I do want you to know that I do have them all saved, okay? And, um, and I just get to them. Sometimes it's almost random in how I select them. And also, um, I do prioritize, though, by people who are Patreon supporters. So when they ask me questions, I, of course, put them up in the head of the queue for obvious reasons. And I, on that note, I wanted to put a plug in for Patreon support for my channel because it's kind of important to what I do. Uh, Patreon is basically my main line of uh, support through this channel. If you enjoy what I'm doing, if you think that this channel is educational, informative, and entertaining, then I highly, highly um, ask or will put out there that you check me out on patreon.com slash chrisshelton. Link is below as it is every week in the description box. And I also put a little up in one of the corners, I put a little, uh, little dot with an eye in it and you can click on that and get to the, my Patreon channel. Uh, I just now did a special every month. I do a live Q&A or talk with my Patreon supporters for those of who are interested in talking with me one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, or not one-on-one, -on -one, but, you know, smaller, much smaller groups uh, than when, say, I do a live stream Q&A where I'll have a few hundred people come on. Uh, and the Patreon uh, hangouts, those tend to be a lot less. And we just did one, talked for an hour. It was awesome. I got to tell them about some of my future plans and, and ideas and some of the things that I'm doing in my personal life that I don't particularly go into, even though I do open up quite a bit on this show. So, anyway, I just wanted to put a plug in for that. Uh, also, if you did not see my podcast with John Atak this week, I can't recommend it enough. John's always a favorite on this channel, and he's usually got very, very intelligent things to say, and this week was no exception. We talk a lot about um, some cult education and history if, uh, on the European front, which is very different from what goes on here in the United States, uh, and there's a lot of good reasons for that. They're actually a bit more progressive and a bit more ahead of us uh, in terms of how they're dealing with cult phenomena over there. So anyway, you can check that podcast out. And of course, if you have not seen the video I posted on Thursday, it was the presentation I did last week in Phoenix. And it's why smart people fall for stupid things. And it answers the question of why people get involved with Scientology in the first place. One of the most popular questions on this channel and one that I spent a whole hour discussing to give the whole story on that. So that all being said, let's go ahead and get on with your questions for this week. Nick C. If I understand correctly, the Sea Org is a paramilitary organization loosely modeled after the U.S. Navy as Hubbard knew it during World War II. Most military forces have policies on haircuts and facial hair. The U.S. Navy in particular has a long on-again, off-again relationship with beards. Over the years, they've been repeatedly allowed and then banned again. The ban presently in force was instituted in 1984. Also, unlike the U.S. Army and the U.S. Air Force, the Navy doesn't allow mustaches. Anyway, my question, what, if any, is the Sea Org policy on haircuts and facial hair? Thanks, Nick. Uh, good question. And uh, only because it's, it's kind of interesting in how the Sea Org uh, demands that its membership present itself to the world. 
uh, in this day where you know you got people with studs and and plugs and and nipple rings and all kinds of you know crazy stuff that people do, which I wouldn't particularly get into, but I don't you know knock other people doing it. You want to pierce up your body, go right ahead. Sea Org, <laughs> no, they're not going to have any of that. It is very conservative. Uh, as far as facial hair, people can have beards in the Sea Org. People can have mustaches in the Sea Org. Men can, of course. Um, hopefully, the women don't. And um, they, as long as they're neatly trimmed, as long as they look professional. The idea is a business professional standard. That's basically, and that that standard. And I guess I should say business professional standard from say the, you know, I don't know, the '90s or the, the you know, I, like I don't know exactly what time period you would say because, like for example, I won't say the '50s. You know, people in the Sea Org don't have to have crew cuts. They don't have to have, you know, no facial hair. That's, I don't know that that's ever been a thing in the Sea Org. By the time I got in, in the 1980s, the idea of having long hair was definitely nilcho, though. Uh, which was funny, because we would talk about the fact that old members, you know, you'd see p pictures of people back on the ship in the, in the 60s and 70s, and they had long hair, ponytails, you know, beards, you know, long mustaches, droopy. And, um, and you know, obviously the 60s and 70s uh, hip, chic, professional look was uh, maybe a little different from, you know, as time moved forward. So that's kind of, so, so they really, it's one of those things where they don't define it exactly. There aren't um, specific guides. There's no, like, necessary length. It's more like, <laughs> it's more like if you piss off the wrong purpose person or you look in a way that some senior executive disagrees with or is somehow offended by your appearance, you're going to hear about it. And they're going to they're gonna, uh, tell you straight away, you know, and then sometimes I saw uh, a couple times during my time in the Sea Org, people ordered directly to go get a haircut or go get whatever, you know, dealt with. Uh, this is mostly dealt with uh, pretty, pretty much handled on the EPF, the Estates Project Force, which is sort of the Sea Org boot camp. When you first get into the Sea Org, you have to go through all this rigorous training and, and classes and stuff. And, and the, the guy who runs the EPF is preferably somebody with a military background and somebody who's going to run a tight ship on the EPF is going to be, you know, very stringent. And they're going to, you know, remove all the studs and the plugs and the, anything that's going to, you know, uh, be of poor appearance as far as Sea Org style goes. And it's kind of a cultural thing. It's not really a in-writing thing. There's a guide, I think, at Flag and in PAC, uh, the, the big blue buildings in L.A., there are guides to appearance, you know, little booklets uh, that they put together that basically just say neatly trimmed. So, it, you know, if, if it fits that kind of uh, uh, look, then you're pretty much going to be okay. Uh, women get a lot more attention. There was one time where we even had professionals come in and do a whole grooming thing with all the women on the base. This was in the uh, late uh, 90s and uh, they styled a bunch of women and, and cut hair and tried to give, they gave a seminar or something on, a, on appearance. They did one for the guys and one for the girls and, and so there were, there were efforts made in that direction and that's, that's pretty much how it goes. If things get too unruly, if you get too unruly or unkempt, you know, again, you're going to hear about it. But most of the time, uh, 
most of the time people don't pay a whole lot of attention to it unless it's distracting. So that's, anyway, that's what I can say about that. L.M. Barnes 3. Are you concerned with Jada Pinkett's Red Table Talk? It appears to be a new way to sell Scientology without saying the word. Check out her discussion on raising kids as adults. Alright, so Will Smith's wife, Jada Pinkett, has started a show on Facebook where she live streams or does pre-recorded shows and puts them out on Facebook and it's called Red Table Talk. And I watched some of the first episode and then I went to watch the one on um, raising the kids, the, the Smiths, uh, you know, growing up Smiths or something like that it was called. And, um, well, you know, I don't know that the Smiths are Scientologists anymore. Uh, if they ever were. I, I heard rumors, um, you know, I mean, TMZ quality reporting is not anything to rely on, uh, that they were involved in Scientology. Clearly, they opened up a Scientology school. So I'm not saying there's no connection, and Will Smith and Tom Cruise were friends. So I'm sure Tom, you know, was uh, proselytizing or disseminating to Will Smith and his family. Um, so they got, they got Will Smith on board as far as opening up a Scientology school, and that went for a couple of years. But I don't know that they're, that they're practicing Scientologists. And, and I watched the show very closely on what she was talking about with raising her children. And I have to be honest, I didn't really see a problem in what she was talking about. She didn't say things like, okay, well, we treat our kids as little adults and give them all the responsibilities, and this is how you should raise your kids. She was kind of the exact opposite of that in a number of ways. They were very clear, her and um, this uh, Martin guy that she had on, um, who's a friend of the family and has been for decades. I think he was the one who was responsible for Jada and Will Smith meeting up in the first place, according to what they were saying. They were both very clear about the fact that the way that they were raised was kind of a very independent latchkey uh, uh, environment. They, they kind of, you know, were responsible for themselves a lot. I relate to that. I grew up, you know, where my parents weren't around a lot. They were working a lot. Um, so, you know, I got home from school. I let myself in and took care of myself and stuff like that. Um, pretty, you know, I mean, not, not unreasonably so, not from first grade. I'm talking about later in life. And they seemed to indicate that that was how they were raised too. So they said that, um, that in raising their own kids, you know, that, um, that they kind of took what they, what they were presented with and they dealt with it as each individual child. So it wasn't that it was a blanket policy that the kids were all little, you know, spiritual beings in, in little bodies and, and that they'd lived forever and, and, uh, and they knew everything that they needed to know already and they just needed to be reminded of it. That's Scientology. That's the Sea Org attitude and Scientology attitude towards kids. And that's not what she was saying. She said that you should, um, she, in fact, they said flat out, this isn't a recommendation of how every kid should be treated. Not every kid is capable of being independent. Not every kid's capable of taking care of themselves or making their own decisions at every step along the way. Not all 15-year-olds equal all 15-year-olds, you know. And she said uh, a couple other things. One of uh, the things she said was that she wanted to create an environment where rather than overseeing her kids, there was a question about whether she has the passwords to her kids' social media accounts. And I don't know that she answered that question, but she did say that rather than creating an environment where she feels that she has to spy on her kids or oversee her kids or watch over what they're doing, 
She wanted to create an environment where she was somebody that they could come to if they had a problem or an issue and they would deal with it together and that she was always going to be somebody that they could talk to. That's pretty healthy parenting as far as I'm concerned. So, um, so I didn't really see a Scientology influence there. The word responsibility came up once during the show, as I remember, because I was watching for any kind of clues of Scientology-type words or concepts or phrases that would be communicated in what she was saying, and I didn't really see that. Scientologists are really big on um, exchange, response, personal responsibility, um, that the, the spiritual aspect of a child and how a child is, is really just an adult growing his body or her body. None of that was what came across in what she was saying. Now, if I watch the wrong episode, please let me know. Because um, I'm just talking about the one that I watched that was something that I think it was called Growing Up in the Smiths or Growing Up with the Smiths or something, which as far as I could tell was the one that was talking about what, what you'd referred me to. So. So I didn't really have a problem with that, and I didn't see evidence of Scientology influence there. So that's my take on that show. Lori Pacheca, did you grieve when LRH died? If you were too young, do you recall your parents' reaction? Did you feel like you missed the grand old days of LRH's command coming to the Sea Org after his time? L. Ron Hubbard died in 1986, and I was 16 years old, or 15, I think I, would, I, think I had uh, just turned 15 years old, actually. Um, and I was sad when I heard that he died. I was at home. I lived in Santa Maria, California at the time. I was still going to high school. I think I had um, maybe just started. Yeah, I think, I, I think the summer before I had just started doing Scientology services. So it was still kind of, you know, relatively fresh and new for me. Um, and I, okay, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. Because uh, this is exactly what happened when I heard that he died. I did feel sad. I didn't feel sad because the founder of Scientology was dead and what was that going to mean for Scientology or you know what was going to happen or I didn't feel adrift in any way because of that. <laughs> Here's why I felt sad. <laughs> when I was about seven or eight years old, I wrote L. Ron Hubbard a letter. And there was a policy in the church that uh, you could always write to Ron, no matter who you were or what you had to say, and he would always get your answer. You would always get your letter and, you know, most of the time write you back. This is called the SO number one line. It's this line that, you know, this, this policy in Scientology. And I did not know at the time that other people were answering, you know, reading his mail and answering for him. I had no idea about that. I'm eight years old. I get this letter back from him, uh, and it, um, it, it talked about, I talked about how I had gone to summer camp, and Hubbard, or, or ostensibly, or somebody in Hubbard's name, wrote me back and said that they, you know, that in Hubbard's name, saying, I remember going to Boy Scout camp, you know, when I grew up in Montana or wherever, and I always had a good time why don't you write me back and tell me about your experiences? Well, I tried to write him back. I never could write the whole story of my summer camp experience because I was pretty young and I, and I never really sat down and wrote it all out. I had this sort of vision of what I wanted to tell him. I tried writing him back with this other, and sending him some, I don't know, some little finger puppets or something. Uh, again, I was eight years old, right? 
And my dad stopped me from sending those. He, um, he thought that Hubbard didn't really need that and said, I think Ron has a few more things to do than, than get your finger puppets. And, I, and, I, and that kind of stopped the communication at that point. I didn't really have anything else to say to Hubbard. So I grew up, right? And, and then comes around to being, you know, seven, eight years later and he dies. And my thought was, shit, I'm not gonna be able to write him about that summer camp. <laughs> I know that's ridiculous. I know that that is the stupidest thing ever. I'm just honestly telling you what went through my head. Um, that I had never, I felt that I had somehow uh, not fulfilled an obligation that I'd had to not write him back in, in, in not doing that. So, um, so that was my initial thought when he died. We then saw the event that David Miscavige Put on at the Palladium where they announced his death and talked about the, you know, coming OT levels and that Ron was off doing further research and this sort of thing. And I took it all in uh, at face value. I, I, I took everything I heard at, at, you know, yes, okay, this is what's happening. And I, you know, believed in a spiritual existence when I was 15, 16 years old. So I didn't have any reason to doubt that Ron was sailing off in the galaxy you know, going off to other planets and, and figuring things out. So that was, that was kind of my thought process at the time. I was never regretful that when I, joined, when I later joined the Sea Org when I was 25 years old, I was never regretful that I was not in the Sea Org when Hubbard was around. I voraciously would, you know, encounter people and stop them who had met Hubbard or worked with Hubbard, and I would just quiz them, sometimes for over an hour, about everything Hubbard. Tell me all about him. You know, what was he like? I was trying to answer for myself at that point the question, how did one man figure all this out? It didn't make any sense to me. I couldn't think my way through it. Um, I didn't then know, I didn't, obviously I didn't know then what I know now, that Hubbard didn't figure it all out, that he was a, a you know, blatant plagiarist uh, and, and thief. He would just steal people's ideas and call them his own. I had no idea that he had ever done anything like that. I took it, again, naively on face value that everything was, with his name on it was written by him. Everything that he said was his original thinking. And that, of course, is not true, as I've documented all over my channel. So I was trying to figure this out, though, because there was such a body of work. I mean, this, um, this tremendous... Uh, thousands of bulletins, policy letters, lectures, all this work. Plus, he was a Pulp Fiction writer. Plus, he was a seaman and he was a, a you know, mu music maker and filmmaker and like all these professions. And I'd, I'd bought into all of the church propaganda about all of that. And I was trying my best to figure my way through how could somebody do that. And of course, the answer in Scientology is, well, he was Ron. He was amazing. He was incredible. Well, you know, nobody's like Ron. Nobody could put stuff out like Ron. So I would corner people who actually knew him or actually worked with him, and I'd, you know, tell me all about him. And I would always get, uniformly, the hero worship stories about how amazing and wonderful and compassionate he was. And I would very rarely, very, very rarely would I get anything critical of Hubbard. Um, I've learned a lot more about the, the dark sides of, of working for him personally after I left the church from former members who are willing to look at Hubbard with a little bit more of a critical eye and look at him more as a human being 
rather than the reverence which we you know gave him when we were in the church so i hope that answers that question gary lulu first i would like to say that the more i learn from your experiences and from the experiences of your contemporaries such as mike render and aaron smith levin for example it hits me that there is a common denominator amongst you all it's the fact that all of you guys have started your journey into scientology more specifically the sea org with a sincere desire to help your fellow human beings. Despite all of the sacrifices that you guys knew were sure to follow by joining the Sea Org, you guys took a literal leap of faith. You all went into that organization knowing full well that the road ahead would not be one that would be easy or filled with the comfortable things that most people in this day and age, especially in this country, are used to having. One must realize when they see the whole picture that these actions show what kind of good-hearted people you guys must be to even entertain yet accept such circumstances. However, you've described in great detail that Scientology, the vessel you guys had taken to try and help mankind, was one that was nothing less than awful and horrible. I understand now, when one sees things in this light, that when you guys had come to the realization that the route you guys had chosen to help so many in this life was rotten to the core that it must have been a deeply traumatic experience. My question is this. If Scientology wasn't the corrupt and vile institution it is, would you guys have continued your work in helping mankind? Do you think the sacrifices you guys had been making would have eventually become too much to bear as you all had gotten older? Okay, well, there, that's, that's, a, that's a tough question. Um, you ask in the question whether if Scientology wasn't the vile and corrupt organization that it is, would we still be there or would we still be contributing? And of course, I think the answer would be pretty almost uniformly yes. Aaron left because his wife got pregnant. So, you know, I guess that would be contingent on whether that rule was in force or not. Mike left, of course, because of the abuses and I left because I saw that it was a you know, abusive, lying, money-hungry organization. And I found out after the fact, I think we all do, just how bad it really gets. I mean, I think Mike knew from his experience with Miscavige, whereas, you know, Aaron and I had no clue. So speaking for myself, I'd say that if it was a kinder, more beneficent organization that was more supportive of its members, if it tried to get its membership up the Scientology bridge the same way it tries to get the public up the bridge, if it, you know, maybe uh, paid a wage commensurate with inflation so that we weren't getting, you know, chump change every week, um, then yeah, I, might, I probably would have stayed because I would have been part of something that I would have been okay with the sacrifices I was making because I felt that the mission was tantamount and that we were doing good work. And like I've mentioned many times before, I helped a lot of people in Scientology. Sometimes, in fact, most of the time, I helped them despite Scientology, but I, you know, I was in so full of cognitive dissonance that I was able to rationalize almost anything. And so I would, you know, would rationalize that I was helping them with Scientology and that I was making people's lives better. And in many ways, I did. So I liked doing that part of it. And I, and I continue liking doing that part of it with what I do now. So, um, you know, it's just now it's a bit more, you know, but more honest. Uh, and it's not, it's not scamming. You know, what I'm doing now is not scamming people. Uh, at the time, unknowingly, that is what I was doing. So, 
Um, so I'm, you know, I'm trying to to give various ideas of how I think this question, you know, is what, what your intent is here. Um, if Scientology worked and produced clears and OTs that actually were clears and OTs, shit, I'd go back and work for them now uh, because that would be amazeballs. I mean, if you could produce people who have eidetic memory, don't get sick, and are cause over matter, energy, life, you know, time, space, and form, I mean, for God's sake, that would, uh, that would be amazing. And, you know, you could get Miscavige out of there. You could overcome those levels of abuse and, and move that ball down the road and, and help people to attain true spiritual freedom. My God, you know, I think, I think everybody would be beaten down the door of Scientology if that were true. Uh, but, of course, it's not true. None of it's true. And so, you know, so don't judge me for saying I'd go back to work for that organization if those things were true, because those things aren't true. And of course, I'm not going to go anywhere near Scientology ever again because of that fact. So, uh, you know, so I just want to make that clear that, you know, I would, I would uh, be willing to give up a great number of things, uh, even now, if it was in the uh, true forward progress of mankind. I mean, wouldn't that be worth something? I think it would be, and that's certainly what motivates me. So uh, that's my answer to that question, and I hope that it satisfies. Iria Blaskop. I watched your video on how to not be culty, and it was really interesting. But it raises a question that I've had for a few years, and you might have the answer, I hope. I've read about Scientology and other cults for years now. I've watched some documentaries and Leah Remini's series. However, even if you all talk about the common goal of saving the world, I don't find any information on how Scientology was trying to save the world. Did they tell you how you would do it? How to serve the cause? Which actions they slash you were taking? I tried to search the internet but couldn't find any information about Scientology's activities to save the world, quote unquote. I know they won't, but I'm curious to know how they communicate and act about it. All right, so there are a couple different levels of this, um, and it is a little hard to figure out when you look at all of the stuff about Scientology on the internet, what, you know, how's all this supposed to work? And that's why I've ended up making so many videos talking about it and breaking it all down. But as far as the, the concept of saving the world, it's kind of a twofold process. The first part is getting everybody involved in Scientology in the first place. Getting them in and getting them on board because that alone is supposed to bring a sort of a calming effect and bringing truth to people and giving them tools for their lives so that they'll lead more effective, happier, industrious, you know, productive lives. Um, Scientology envisions a sort of uh, utopia kind of civilization where everybody has their place and everybody's doing what they want to be doing. and and uh, and everything is moving towards the sort of the common good. They don't really think about it a whole lot in terms of the nuts and bolts of how this goes together. It's all very magical thinking and kind of airy-fairy. But this is the general idea is that, you know, just by their presence and by the application of Hubbard's methods and techniques and in real life, that they can improve conditions no matter what area or sphere of activity a person's involved in and thereby make the world a better place. And of course, there is a bit of a you know, pacifistic idea in Scientology. They're anti-war, anti-conflict. 
um, you know, they don't want to damage people in order to save them, like, you know, through uh, psychosurgery and stuff, which is one of the reasons why they're so anti-psychiatry. Uh, outdated ideas, but, but generally well-intentioned ideas. So that's a general kind of concept that exists at the lower levels of Scientology as to how they're making the world a better place. But in terms of saving the world, this is where you get into the belief system of Scientology and the sort of the faith of it, because this involves the OT levels. And at the lower levels, pre, you know, before you get to the OT levels, all you know is that there's confidential information that is of tantamount importance and that everyone has to get to those levels. And you don't really know exactly what's going to happen when they get to those levels. You just know that that's the goal. Get everybody to OT. All right. Now, when you get to the OT levels, and this is stuff that I learned after I got out of Scientology because it was all confidential when I was in and I never made it to those levels. But I want you to find out and how, you're, how it's discussed uh, in the church, uh, as far as the OT levels go, is that what you're doing when you're auditing, you know, running through the processes of, the, uh, of those OT levels, which include the Xenu thing, but there's a lot more to it. And I've broken it all down in my book because there is so much to it. It's kind of complicated. But the, the, the point of those OT levels is to free theta is called spiritual positive spiritual energy okay let's put it that way or positive life energy um, and when you get onto those upper levels you're not just dealing with yourself you're dealing with the environment you're dealing with with freeing theta they call it okay that that term again for positive or 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 life energy um, and so by what what they're and, they're and it's not just freeing new theta it's that the world is basically in the condition that it's in because of condensed solidified you know hardened theta which is called in scientology n theta e n t h e t a n theta which means interbulated theta or theta that has been brought down from its sort of spiritual, light, airy, fairy existence to more of a solid existence. And there's even thoughts at the lower levels in Scientology that maybe matter, energy, space, and time itself consists of condensed theta. Uh, Hubbard didn't really go there, but, it, but that's kind of a, a, you know, a sort of a thought. Uh, that maybe we're, you know, that the, the, the physical universe itself is sort of the antithesis of, of theta. And that by, by freeing, by converting that n theta into theta, you are freeing up life potential. And thereby reducing the tendency or urge of people in this world to uh, violence, to ignorance, to uh, solutions that don't work, right? To, to, to nonsense and irrationality. And uh, again, this is all very magical thinking, okay? There's not a lot of basis for this thinking. It's just sort of they're taking Hubbard's word for it. And you get onto these OT levels and nothing that you're doing really ends up producing any of this. But that's what they think they're doing. You know, by uh, if you're familiar with the Xenu story and with body thetans, then you're familiar with the idea of these, you know, spiritual entities that are basically asleep or unconscious and you're waking them up and revitalizing them and sending them on their way. That's the conversion of n theta to theta, okay? 
And the way it was explained to me when I was in the Sea Org is that the flag land base, the place in Clearwater, Florida, where they deliver these OT levels and the highest OT levels, uh, is sort of a theta factory. And it just is spewing theta all day long. <laughs> and that, and that, that there's such a tremendous amount of N theta that's solidified over all the trillania of years that we've existed. And that this OT3 thing, which you don't know the details of until you do it in Scientology. Um, so I didn't know what it consisted of. I just knew that, that it was super important and that, that there was some big secret to learn on it, and that this secret involved how we were converting all this n theta into theta. And that there was a lot of work to do, and that we had a balance. It was sort of, if you imagine a scale of n theta and theta, we, our job was to tip the scale, because right now it was heavily tipped to the n theta side, and we needed to bring more theta and tip the scale, and by doing that, we would literally be changing the conditions of society, and we would be t converting our, our whole civilization to a sort of golden age of enlightenment and reason and, uh, and theta. And that's kind of how it's explained in the world of Scientology. So you're not going to glean that whole explanation from pretty much anything you're going to read on the internet that I've run across. So um, I think I've talked about this once before on this show, but it was a long time ago, so it was, it was time for me to explain this all again. And I hope that that makes sense. I'm more than happy to answer any further questions on that, but that's what I just, what I just laid out is pretty much the Scientology concept of what they think they're doing by doing Scientology. And like I said, if they were, I'd be the first on board, but that's not what they're doing at all. What they're really doing is just making a lot of money off of a very gullible group of people. And, uh, and that's why I speak out against it, because that kind of nonsense needs to stop. <sighs> All right, it is Flash Answers time. Bengt Olson, I just read your book, Scientology from A to Zenu. Thank you. In the book, you say that the Galactic Overlord's real name was Zemu, not Zenu. Why then did you call the book Scientology from A to Zenu? I called the book Scientology A to Zenu because that's the word that everybody recognizes. If I said Scientology A to Zemu with an M, everybody would wonder what the hell I was talking about, which is why I took a little bit in the book to explain why Hubbard actually uses both terms. It's more of an interchangeable thing. There's Zemu and there's Zenu. And, um, but he specifically, specifically spells it out in a lecture, X-E-M-U. Now, the handwriting is very controversial. We've had back and forth on this as to whether it's Z-Nu or Z-Mu. Pretty clearly it looks like Z-Nu with an N, but you could interpret it as an M. But it's mainly the fact that Hubbard literally spelled it out that lends me to believe that it could be either way. So heard it both ways, but since Xenu is the one that was popularized on South Park, that's pretty much why I called my book what it's called. Alex Can, have you ever heard of the video game series Fallout? The reason I ask is because even as far back as 1998, they parodied Scientology with an in-game commune called the Hubologists. They were again referenced in the latest Fallout game and seemed as wacky as ever. The reason I ask is that in 1998, wasn't Scientology a lot more legitimate? 
Have you heard of the Fallout Hubologists? I haven't played Fallout ever. Um, I've played Far Cry, but I haven't played Fallout. And I have heard of the Hubologists, and I heard about the parody. Um, and no, Scientology wasn't a lot more legitimate in 1998. It was just as scammy as it is now. Um, so I'm not going to really go there. But um, I, 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 I haven't played Fallout, so I can't really speak intelligently about the Hubologists, except that I can acknowledge that they're there, and I love the fact that they're there. Paul Cumming. Do Scientologists succeed in convincing themselves that the album Space Jazz is good music? Would that be like my, technically, fellow Jews convincing themselves that kosher wine is potable, i.e. because they have to believe this? Yeah, it's probably somewhat analogous to that. Space Jazz was an album uh, that uh, Hubbard put together um, using Scientology musicians as a soundtrack to his book Battlefield Earth, which was published back in 1980. So this is decades-old stuff. And Space Jazz was not great music, uh, not something I ever listened to, for example. I think I heard it once and I was like, what the hell is that? Uh, but I've never been into jazz. So I just wrote it off for me as, well, I don't like jazz, so it's not my thing. I didn't really get into judging the music any more than that. Um, so, yeah, Scientologists who like that stuff, maybe some of them like jazz. Uh, you know, Chick Corea is a Scientologist. He's an internationally famous jazz musician. I think he might have been involved in that a little bit. Uh, so, you know, if you have a taste for jazz, then maybe you'd like that. But me, I can't, I, keep me away. Okay, that is our show for this week. Thanks a lot, guys, for coming around and giving me your questions. And uh, please leave any comments or further questions in the comment section below. And I will get to them and I will answer them eventually. Uh, Thanks for coming around and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.